For many years, when I was a Presbyterian, I never preached on Mother's Day as a matter of principle. Because it wasn't in the church, it wasn't in the church calendar, because I didn't believe in the church calendar. <laughs> then I became an Anglican, I discovered Mother's Day is not in the church calendar. <laughs> Fortunately for us, Jesus refers to mothers today, and so I will as well. Motherhood cannot, the importance of it cannot be understated at all. I'm sorry, it cannot be overstated. You cannot say too much about it. Mothers are foundational to any civilization. Without them, they crumble and fall away. And I'm not speaking here of of natural generation, because of course you will always have people. God and nature has taken care of that. Of course, it is a natural good that a woman conceives a baby, grows, her, grows him or her in, the, in their bodies, delivers them, nurses them upon her breasts. These are all natural goods. And all things being equal, they'll occur no matter what. What I'm talking about is the formation of the soul of every young individual that is born into the world. How critical it is that the mother engages in that. And as a rule, that's the case as well. No, no great building, no, no bridge, no accomplishment of the past century where we've seen experimental science and engineering produce all the wonders around us and we go ooh and ah. No king, no president, no army. None of them are foundational as motherhood is. For none of them would be here without motherhood. Forming in the young the soul of that human being. What a mother does to the soul of that child is so foundational that modern psychology will tell you by the time a person's seven years old, the basics are already laid. Oh, sure, they'll go on and get an education and have experiences and learn things. Hopefully they'll, you know, come to a saving knowledge of Christ and the Holy Spirit will will sanctify them over time. But the foundation is already laid. The theological virtues are placed in that child, are formed in that child by the mother. Faith, hope, love. The cardinal virtues, temperance, prudence, justice. And I'm missing one. Fortitude. Did I already say that one? Okay. Anyway. Are formed in that child. Temperance. The, 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 the normal and rightful use of the, of, of the things about us. The, the refraining from, from excessive pleasure in the material world. Don't eat another cookie. And thus the child learns that they'll make themselves sick by eating another cookie. But, you know, more importantly, like, like fortitude, the willingness to, in, to engage in the arduous. Justice, what we owe to everyone, each person, the society as a whole, God. Worship of God is justice, you understand. All of these foundational Things are, 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 are worked into the soul of that young, tender child 
by mothers. And where they are not, well, I mean, the prisons and insane asylums and homeless on the streets and so forth and so on are evidence of the fact that in this culture, in this civilization, we have devalued motherhood. We have not held it up high. And every single civilization that sits on the ash heap of history made the same mistake. There are great civilizations, friends, in history. Way, way greater than the American civilization. Who stood a lot longer and eventually collapsed on themselves because mothers failed to make the next generation of fully formed souls. It cannot, it, it just simply cannot be held in high enough esteem. Everything else, I mean, the man goes off to work and does great and marvelous things and golfers clap. The real work is being done at home with the children because that will survive and that will be sitting in these pews when we're all gone. That's the important work of motherhood. It is the critical work of motherhood. It is the all-important work of motherhood. I reflect, and I haven't said this in the last sermon, so I'm going to say it now. But you think about redemptive history. You think about our Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world. He is the second Adam, as Paul tells us. Would it not have been a simple thing to form the second Adam, even as he formed the first Adam, out of the dust of the earth? Would there not have been a certain symmetry in that? He formed the first Adam out of the dust of the earth, he formed the second Adam out of the dust of the earth. And yet he did not. He chose that she would be the bearer of the new covenant, the, the, as it's called by some, the, the tabernacle of the new covenant. And Jesus learned all the important lessons from her because God perfected her in advance for that great work, the mother of mothers. An example to us all. Now, when I first read this passage, I thought to myself, why is it that the, that the Apostle John, and this is the last gospel written, so this is 30, 40 years after these events took place. Many of the apostles are already dead. John was the only one that died a natural death at age 95. It, why bring up the, because it's already been said, in, in, not only in his gospel, but in all the other gospels that had previously been written, the obtuseness and the, 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 the dullness of the apostles. I thought to myself, do we really need to revisit how stupid they were? <laughs> they didn't get it. And it's kind of like, well, okay. And so I kept on reading. And I see this part where he talks about their, you know, that they're going to be sorry, but, but then it'll be turned into joy. And then he goes into this, this analogy of a woman travailing in labor and the joy that she has when she's born into the world. And I thought to myself, well, this is why he said the, the previous sentences was to introduce this analogy so that we would have that, so that we would understand that life in this world is like a mother in labor. But then he says something really remarkable at the end. And your joy no man taketh from you. Now, as I reflected upon joy, I remembered this picture of my um, great-grandfather, my grandfather, 
my great-grandmother and my Aunt Marge, my great-Aunt Marge, the only person in the picture I ever met. And they were at a picnic in the summertime up in Pittsburgh circa 1916, just a few years before he was to be drafted for the First World War. And they're sitting there, and he's got one of those, my great-granddad's got one of those straw hats with the brim on it, you know, the white straw hats, you know, we remember from like the Great Gatsby kind of thing. And this is the expression on all their faces, if you can see my face. Now, these were not unhappy people, you know. Now, they were at a picnic, for goodness sakes. But they didn't smile at the camera back then. And the reason why was is that you looked like somebody who belonged in Crownsville, okay, or like the profoundly, you know, uh, stupid or uh, insipid or, you know what he wanted to look like that? They wanted to look dignified when their image was recorded. And you go around with silly grins on their face. No, look, I smile at pictures. We all modern people, we all smile at pictures, okay? No accusations here. But they didn't do that. And yet they had joy. These, my, these people were very religious. My great-great-grandfather, great-grandfather. But that's not the kind of joy that we're talking about. I'm reminded again of that song. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart. Down in my heart. And I've seen a man be forced to sing that song at his own mother's funeral. Tears coming down his eyes. And it's ridiculous. Because that's not what we're talking about when we talk about joy. That's not it. It's not some silly grin on your face. You don't have to stop smiling at me, by the way, if you don't. All of a sudden, everyone's face goes like this. I'm like, oh, no. I say something wrong. But that's not the joy. No, the joy was a serenity. I mean, look who he said it to. He said this to the apostles. Every single one of them, except for John, the one who wrote it, was murdered before the end of their natural life in, in horrible, horrible ways. Thrown off the precipice, gutted, stoned to death, hung upside down on a crucifix. The Apostle Paul got off really, really good with the beheading because he was a Roman citizen, so he got the quick death. That was nice. That was a nice end for an apostle to have your head chopped off. And yet Jesus says, your joy is not going to be taken from you. They weren't insipidly smiling through all this. So what does he mean? It, it means that like the woman who is in the travail when they were born into heaven and they, and they, they had that hope, not I hope something's going to happen, but the assurance of the future. That's what the joy was. The joy was is that they knew when the travail of this life was over that they would be born into the eternal joy, the bliss, staring at the beatific vision, God on his throne, basking in the warmth of that light forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.